0: Hi, and welcome to Anatomyth, a podcast about stories, conjecture, and the human body. It's the first episode, and today I'll be giving you a brief description of the show. After that, we'll jump right into it with a nightmare, a creature which can be found in many cultures across the world. Then, we'll have a look at a disorder that occurs during sleep, and whose symptoms some of them anyway, are pretty similar to those of a visit from the nightmare. We'll see why this kind of sleep-disordered breathing can be so insidious, as well as how it can be diagnosed, and what treatment options are available. This is Episode 1, Sleep Tight. Humans have always used storytelling as a way to make sense of the world around them, And each culture has its own myths, folk and fairy tales, legends, and lore. It doesn't take a lot of imagination to think that at least some of these stories may pertain to natural events and observations, all tied up in the wonder of magic, monsters, and very often meddling gods. I've always loved such stories, And I love making connections between the stories of different cultures, speculating about the similarities between creatures, elements, and events, and wondering about the differences. And now, as a medical student, I'm beginning to notice more and more how some elements of these stories seem to correspond with things that have been proven and that we know to be true today. This podcast tries to investigate these similarities. Of course, it may not always be present. Some stories are just that, stories. But even in those cases, I hope that I've at least piqued your interest in a tale, and maybe even helped you learn a little bit more about your body. That said, this podcast is primarily for entertainment purposes. If I ever give any suggestions or recommendations, please don't take them too seriously. I'm not a medical professional, and what I say shouldn't be taken as medical advice. While the jury's still out on whether or not everyone dreams, enough of us remember our dreams that they're a solid component of myths, legends, and lore. Nightmare creatures, in particular, can be found in many cultures, and they tend to share some characteristics, either in the way they look, how they act, or both. A typical experience of a visitation by a nightmare creature is a sudden pressure on the chest, as well as paralysis. The victim wouldn't be able to scream or shout or really make any noise at all and oftentimes they would have trouble breathing. There isn't enough time to delve into all of the variations of this creature, nor to properly dissect each one in terms of cultural and historical influences. And, side note, this is something you'll hear me say a lot on this podcast. But I will do my best. Let's start with the Mora, or Zmora, or Kikimora from Slavic lore. This creature can assume any shape, and usually it looks like a squat, goblin-like creature which can slip into people's bedrooms at night. It sits on their chests, choking them and sucking their energy while they're asleep. Sometimes, the Mora can appear as a woman, torturing men, and according to some stories, she can even suck the blood of her victims, seemingly taking on a bit more of a succubus aspect. The Mora doesn't just torture humans, but animals as well, and especially horses. Sometimes, she is described as a tortured soul who can enter a living being. In these cases, the Mora seems to treat this living body as little more than a meat suit, slipping out of it for its moonlighting activities, and leaving it behind as though it were lifeless. But hey, no big deal. You can just lock all your doors and your windows and keep this creature out, right? Wrong. The mora, like many other nightmare creatures, can change its shape to slip through keyholes or the gaps beneath the door. I've read that the name kikimora can also sometimes pertain to a less terrifying creature. A kikimora can also be a house spirit that lives behind a stove or oven. And is sometimes the female counterpart of the Domovoy, which is a protective household spirit with a mischievous streak. Ways to get rid of future visits from the mora include changing your position when you sleep, having certain herbs in your room, or even fumigating the room with said herbs. And if all else fails, keeping a weapon within reach to harm the creature might just do the trick. I'm not too sure how you're going to swing a sword, or maybe even a baseball bat, at something while you're meant to be paralyzed. But this seems like a pretty good strategy to keep uninvited guests, whether supernatural or otherwise, out of your bedroom at night. The Old English mare, meaning nightmare, incubus, or monster, has its origins in various languages including the Old Norse Mara, which means pretty much the same thing. The Ingling saga is a Norse saga that details the arrival of the Norse gods and the founding of the Ingling dynasty. In it, there's mention of the Mara. Vanlandi was one of the kings of Upsal. He had traveled to Finland and, while there, had married a woman named Driva. This was in the winter. The following spring, Vanlandi set out again, promising to return within three years. Ten years go by, though, with no sign of Vanlandi, and so Driva, having waited seven years too long, sends for Huld. Huld was a witch, and she was tasked with bewitching Vanlandi to come home to Finland. And if Huld wasn't successful, because, let's face it, these kings could be so very stubborn, well then, Huld could go right ahead and kill him. Maybe it serves him right for leaving his wife and son, and not even paying child support. Or maybe not. Either way, Huld sets about her task, and pretty soon, the king is overtaken with a sudden desire to go back to Finland. His friends managed to talk him out of it, though, saying that it was the witchcraft of the Finnish that made him want to return. Pretty spot on, really, but that also left hold with no other choice. Presently, the king falls asleep, but soon after, he cries out that the Mara was trampling on him. And even though his men rushed to help him, the Mara succeeded in crushing and killing him. While I wasn't able to find another mention of the Mara, there's a similar theme in another Icelandic saga, the Erbiga Saga. This translates into the saga of the people of Eri, and it's a multi-generational saga that spans over a hundred years. There's a whole lot of things that goes on in this one, but today I want to focus on chapter 16, which is titled Gunlaug is witchridden, Gerid summoned of Thorarin, very helpfully indicating the three main things that take place in the chapter. It was early winter, and Gunlaug Thorbjornson wanted to return to a place called Myolet, and he and a woman named Geyrid are having a chat about it. At some point in their evening, Geyrid tells him not to go as there would be many ride-by-nights about. She further adds that often the culprit is in a fair skin. Gunnlaug brushes this off. He'd be going with his friend Odd Katla's son. There'd be two of them, and the buddy system works. Garrod warns him that Odd would be of no help, but if he was really determined to go, then whatever happened would be on him. And so... Gunnlaug, not reading into the context of this, sets out with Odd that night, and they eventually come to a stop at a place called Holt. Well, Odd does anyway, because Gunnlaug really wanted to get home and wasn't interested in a pit stop. But Gunnlaug never reaches home. And for some reason, while there was some talk of going out to look for him, the search never took place. At some point in the night, Thorbjorn finds his son Gunnlaug laying by the door. Underneath his clothes, his shoulders were bruised black and blue, and the flesh was falling off of his bones. He lay sick the entire winter, and his good friend Odd came to the very reasonable conclusion that, because Gunnlaug and Gayrid had parted with short words that evening, the woman must have ridden him. Like I said this was clearly a very reasonable and logical conclusion. So most men agreed, and Geirid was summoned for being a ride-by-night and causing Gunlaug's sickness. I won't go into the rest of the chapter, but it deals with Geirid's trial, which involves a jury of 12 men deliberating on the verdict. According to the translation notes, a ride-by-night is a possessed female white. Who goes around at night to cause severe bodily harm to men and beasts. The material isn't very specific on the kind of bodily harm, while the bruises that they find on Gunlog may indicate some sort of pressure, it isn't really explicit if it's the same kind of sit-on-your-chest-and-steal-your-breath deal that's present in some of the other nightmare lore. Still, it shows that this idea of a witch or a woman possessed by a ghost, who harms men at night, isn't limited to that one instance in the Ingling saga, and even echoes some of the beliefs surrounding the Slavic mora and Kiki Mora. This concept of being witch-ridden extends into English traditions as well, in the form of the hag, sometimes also called the Old Hag. Again, both humans and horses could be ridden by the hag who can be either a witch or a spirit, or according to some stories, even a woman whom the victim knew. Human victims would typically wake up with this figure on their chest, attempting to steal their breath and life force, and were usually left in a cold sweat afterwards. Some say that they even hear footsteps or other noises during the attack. When horses are ridden by the hag, their manes become matted and tangled. And they can't sleep for the rest of the night. In Catalan folklore, there's a creature called the pesanta. It's usually a large, black, hairy dog with legs or paws made out of steel or iron. Because of this, it can hit anyone that gets in its way. But there's a catch. The pesanta's paws have holes in them. So it can't really properly hold on to anything. Poor guy. And also, can you imagine having iron feet? You'd never be able to skip leg day, and your back would probably hurt, like, all the time. The pisanta lives in ruins, and can also slip into your bedroom through the keyhole, or the gap under the door. And, fitting the job description, it sits on people's chests, causing breathing problems and nightmares. If you were to wake up during an attack by this creature, it would run off so quickly that all you'd see was a shadow. The backtouch of Persian folklore is a female creature with a horrible shape and is also sometimes described as a ghost. A feature that I think is pretty unique to this creature is that she supposedly knows where all of the treasure in the world is hidden. She falls on sleepers suffocating them and filling them with nightmares. But if the sleeper were to grab a hold of the Bakhtach's nose, she would reveal one of these treasures. Alternatively, the sleeper can also wriggle their toes if they just want to be rid of the Bakhtach. Wiggling one's toes is also a way to escape from the clutches of the Batibat. It's a Filipino creature who also attacks sleeping people sitting on their chests and suffocating them. But this creature usually kills its victims. Because of this, the Batibat is actually linked with another syndrome called sudden nocturnal death syndrome, which, as you can probably tell from the name, is when someone suddenly dies in their sleep. Like I said before, this is nowhere near an exhaustive list but I think that it's a good overview of the variations of nightmare creatures across a few different cultures. After the break, I'll talk about a medical condition with some similar symptoms of breathlessness. But first, a message from our sponsors. Have you always had a bad back? Or is there an ache in your bones that hasn't gone away in ages? Are you tired of going to all of these doctors and trying all of these treatments, all to no avail? Well, why not try Dream Healing? Dream Healing is an all-in-one diagnosis and treatment program offered only by the Cult of Asclepius. A tried-and-true process unique to the Cult of the Healing God with a 100% success rate of identifying what's wrong with your body. The Dream Healing Package, which is now available at all temple complexes, includes several nights' stay at the temple complex of your choice, and a program specifically made for you. On the first night, the Healing God will visit you in your dreams, which will then be interpreted by one of our priests, all of whom are highly qualified in the art of dream interpretation. Then we'll work together on a healing regimen that is tailored to you and guaranteed to bring you back to the peak of health. Each temple complex is fully equipped with all the facilities necessary to your healing journey. From our state-of-the-art baths, to the surround sound amphitheater, to the best designed gymnasiums you'll ever see. The Cult of a Slepius Dream Healing Package, healing made just for you. Nightmare creatures are very strongly associated with sleep paralysis, and it's not difficult to see why. It's very typical of these creatures or spirits to exert a weight on their victims, pressing them down so that they can't move, which is a pretty standard experience of sleep paralysis. Really, just the word paralysis kind of gives it away. Instead of sleep paralysis, though, today I'll be talking about obstructive sleep apnea, which is a kind of sleep-disordered breathing. The symptoms of this condition don't fit as perfectly with the experiences of nightmare victims, but I think that there may still be a potential link to the choking, breathless aspect of these nighttime visitations. And also, while sleep paralysis seems to be really interesting, I wouldn't know where to start with it. I haven't studied the specifics of sleep or sleep disorders yet, And it didn't feel right to open up a podcast with a topic that I knew pretty much next to nothing about. Obstructive sleep apnea, on the other hand, was a topic that I covered in class a couple of semesters ago. And when our professor described it, he said that patients would usually wake up gasping and choking and just generally sounding as though they were being strangled or suffocated. And in doing so, he unwittingly gave me the inspiration for this episode. At the time that I started researching for this, I was also preparing for an exam in that course. And I really like to justify the rabbit holes that I fall into. I figure that if I can pretend like they're somehow related to my studies, then it's all good. And finally, another thing that drew me to OSA or obstructive sleep apnea, is that it's not a very well-known disorder, and it's also pretty dangerous. Not only because it's believed to be severely underdiagnosed, but also due to its consequences, which we'll go over later. Sleep-disordered breathing is an umbrella term for a number of disorders where someone breathes abnormally during sleep. Pretty self-explanatory term, right? Obstructive sleep apnea is another condition whose name is pretty self-explanatory. There are a few different kinds of changes in breathing while we're asleep, and dyspnea and apnea are two of these. They're really just words to describe episodes of reduced breathing, in the case of dyspnea, or no breathing at all, in the case of apnea. So that covers the apnea part of OSA. The obstructive part is the reason why the patient experiences this apnea. It's because the person's upper airways close while they're asleep. A lot of things can obstruct the airways and cause closure or collapse, or at the very least narrowing. For example, excessive fat around the pharynx can narrow the airways and even increase collapse in that area. Lack of muscle innervation or disruptions in it can lead to muscle relaxation and again narrowing of the airways. There are also other causes like inflammation or differences in structure, all of which can lead to airway closure. And whether partial or complete, this closure of the airways leads to a lack of oxygen in the blood and therefore disrupted sleep. One consequence of this is that patients can wake up very abruptly. These awakenings are accompanied by gasping and choking, and they sometimes sound like they're struggling to breathe. Even if someone doesn't randomly wake up, there's usually a lot of loud, disruptive snoring, which in itself is associated with interrupted sleep. An interrupted sleep is not something that you want to experience, especially not to this degree. For example, in some very severe cases, patients can experience an episode of apnea every couple of minutes. One of the dangers of disrupted sleep is that sufferers experience the effects during the day. I'm sure we've all had at least one day when we didn't get much sleep the night before, And so we're cranky and tired, we're super sleepy, and just can't concentrate. We've also probably had too much caffeine in the morning, and overall, we're just not having a great time. Now imagine feeling that way, but every single day of your life, and in some cases, not even having a clue about what's causing all of it. There have been, and there still are, Many people who've had severe sleep apnea for decades, but who had no idea that they were experiencing sleep interruptions. For all they knew, they've been going to bed early and supposedly getting the recommended 8 hours of sleep a night. Because the choking, gasping, and suffocation occur while asleep, those who aren't constantly waking up usually don't realize that anything's wrong. A lot of the time, it's the people who sleep next to them that can give invaluable information, because they're the ones who observe all of these things happening, and are probably a little concerned. Obstructive sleep apnea can lead to some even more serious consequences in the long run. Lack of productivity, for example, and bad performance at work or at school. Children with a condition often experience delayed learning, and it can also lead to memory loss and depression. OSA is also an important cause of car accidents, on account of very fatigued people falling asleep at the wheel. The health problems don't end there. OSA tends to increase the risk of cardiovascular diseases like arrhythmias or these abnormal heart rhythms stroke, and hypertension. It's been linked to some respiratory disorders as well. Asthmatic patients tend to have a much higher risk to develop OSA, and depending on the severity of their asthma, can also experience some of the symptoms of this disorder. Obstructive sleep apnea isn't age-specific, and it affects both children and adults. It tends to be more common in men, Although women are more likely to develop it when they're pregnant or postmenopausal. Just a note here there was a study published a few years ago which showed that men were much more likely than women to be recommended for a polysomnograph. A polysomnograph is the current gold standard test for diagnosing OSA, and we'll get to that in just a bit. I don't know if this is still the case. I don't know if men are still nine times, by the way, more likely to be recommended for this test, as I just couldn't find all that much on recent figures. But this is always a good thing to remember in medicine. There's always a possibility that we're overlooking the prevalence of a disease in a certain group because of things like this. And now, the polysomnograph. There are a few sleep studies, which can be used to diagnose OSA, but an overnight polysomnography in a lab is the current gold standard. This test monitors a bunch of body functions, like brain activity, airflow, blood oxygen saturation, chest and muscle movement, heart rate and rhythm, basically all of the things that we need to know when trying to figure out if someone stops breathing while they're asleep and starts to wake up. It also monitors the AHI, which stands for the Apnea-Hypopnea Index. This index is the number of apneic and hypopneic episodes which occur every hour that you're asleep. And the position of the body is also usually monitored because many patients experience a position-specific kind of sleep apnea. There are also portable devices which people can take home with them to do the sleep tests there, but these are generally considered less accurate, as first of all, there's no one really qualified to keep track of the person, and also these machines tend to underestimate the severity of the sleep apnea. One of the best things about medicine and science is that we're constantly finding out new things. And a lot of the time, what was once considered the gold standard for either diagnosis or treatment will have changed within a number of years. While the apnea-hypopnea index is currently a main parameter with which to diagnose the condition, a few researchers have recently discovered that the index along with oxygen desaturation, varies from one night to the next. A few studies have pointed to a high probability of missing mild to moderate OSA if you just happen to perform the sleep study on the wrong night. Of course, it's early days yet. This hasn't been extensively investigated, so I'm not entirely sure what to make of it. But This just shows you how fickle medicine is sometimes. It could be that in a few years, sleep apnea will be diagnosed with another, more accurate measurement. Or on the flip side, it could also turn out that the apnea hypopnea index is actually fairly accurate, and it'll stick around for a bit longer. I want to take a minute to talk about the elbow sign which is an example of something which, a few years ago, seemed to be fairly promising to at least some researchers, but didn't really catch on. If you're wondering why it didn't catch on, well, the elbow sign is when patients are either poked or elbowed by their bed partners when they snore or stop breathing. I could only find two studies investigating it in relation to OSA screening or diagnosis. Both of these were from 2014, and one study showed that it maybe wasn't the most accurate tool for diagnosing OSA, at least not for most people. So it seems like the elbow sign didn't really gain a lot of traction, which makes sense I feel like elbowing someone in bed isn't exactly disease or condition specific, but it's exactly the kind of not really useful information that I'm most likely to remember, so I just thought I'd share that with you. And here's something else that's interesting, and which is probably quite a bit more important. A few smartphone apps have recently been developed to screen for or monitor sleep apneas, or sleep-disordered breathing in general. They're fairly new. The study's only cropping up from about a year or two ago, so I don't know if they're widely in use yet. But I think that if we can make it work with a good enough accuracy, then it'll be a pretty big step, especially in terms of accessibility. Also, it's just really cool to see what we can do with smartphones and apps these days. The preferred treatment for adults with OSA is CPAP, which stands for Continuous Positive Airway Pressure. The CPAP machine consists of a small device, a tube, and a mask which goes over the nose, and sometimes even the mouth. It works by providing a continuous stream of pressurized air, which keeps the airways open, so that the patient can then breathe normally. Unfortunately, CPAP doesn't work for everyone. But there are alternatives available, like surgery and oral devices which can keep the mouth open. So that's it for this episode. If you ever find yourself with a nightmare creature on top of you, either try pulling a bride from kale Bill and force your toes to move out of sheer force of will, or maybe even try changing your sleeping position. Interestingly, enough people actually experience a position-specific kind of obstructive sleep apnea. That sleeping position is one of the things that technologists watch out for when monitoring a person in a lab polysomnograph. OSA was only legitimized as an actual condition in the mid-1960s, but we've made quite a bit of progress since. Before then, it was called the Pickwickan syndrome, after Samuel Pickwick and Charles Dickens' The Posthumous Papers of the Pickwick Club. Apparently, Mr. Pickwick's condition was detailed so well that the physician recognized it in the symptoms of OSA. And in case you hadn't noticed, doctors back in the day didn't really have a lot of originality. When they weren't naming things after themselves, they were naming them after fictional characters. As with most things in science and medicine, there's still quite a long way to go in terms of this condition. I'm particularly looking forward to seeing more integration of diagnostic methods with smartphones. I mean, we've already got those watches which can monitor your blood pressure and heart rate, and it would be super cool if we could monitor specific conditions with something as accessible as a smartphone app. I hope that you enjoyed this episode and maybe even learned something new. Next time, I'll be talking about some of my favorite animals, snakes. We'll look at some of the cosmetic benefits and torture material potential of snake venom, and why you shouldn't mess with spitting cobras. We'll be focusing on Norse mythology, tackling Loki's punishment and the events leading up to it, but I'll also talk about a few other mythical snakes from around the world. If you like the show, please subscribe to it on your preferred podcast app and please rate the show and leave a review. It helps to get the word out about the show and I really appreciate getting feedback. Also, tell your friends about it. You can also reach the show on social media. Whether it's to suggest a topic, discuss the raw potential of the elbow sign, or just say hi. Also, let me know what you think about the connection I made between Nightmare Creatures and OSA. Do you think it makes sense? Or is it too big of a stretch? You can find the show on Twitter at AnatomythPod and on Instagram and Facebook at Anatomyth. You can also send an email to audrey at anatomyth.com. Links to the website and social media are in the show notes. I'm Audrey, your host, and this was Anatomyth. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.